I, I want to look at a letter that was written uh, 2,000 years ago, a letter that was written when there was uh, greater suffering than even today, a letter that crosses over the history of so many traumatic events. And I love to dig back into history for it reminds me that as hard as life can feel in the present, we're not the first people to struggle. We're not the first people to feel a little lost. We're not the first people to, to kind of wrestle with what it means to live in a new kind of present, to live when, world, when the world isn't normal. And, and I, I've used this phrase recently where it says, you know, we're adjusting to our new normal. Maybe you've heard this passed around. And, and I just want to say that I, I, was, I was listening to a video from a, from a counselor talk about mental health during this time. And uh, her husband said, uh, new normal. And, and she replied, no, this isn't normal. And I thought that was really helpful. So I don't even like that phrase anymore. We're not adjusting to a new normal. We're acknowledging that this isn't normal. And I think that's something really healthy. But this letter I want to read was written by the great uh, church leader, Paul, at a time when the church was young and often facing immense persecution. And Paul he wrote many letters to churches, but the one I want to glance at um, is the letter he wrote to the church in Rome. So if you have a Bible, you can find a copy of the letter there. It's known as the Book of Romans. It's right after the Gospels. It's right, at the, in, right after the Gospels in the Book of Acts. But here's, here's what you need to know about Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the Roman church. It's Paul's masterpiece. Its, it's depth is, is sometimes overwhelming. In fact, I don't even like to read Romans because it just confuses me. Uh, so we're going to read it today, and hopefully a part that isn't super confusing. But it's rich, and it's deep, and it's, and it's honestly, it's just hard to understand at times. One commentary compared it to climbing a mountain. And I love that analogy because he says, you know, most people won't even choose to climb. And those who do climb it will tell you it's the only way to get to the top, which isn't the case. There's lots of different sides to a mountain. But it's this big book with these really deep ideas. A another commentary said, perhaps not surprisingly, it remains the case that anyone who claims to understand Romans fully is almost by definition mistaken. So we're not going to climb to the top. Uh, we're going to assume, uh, we're not going to assume that we understand it all. If, if you're looking for a hard read though, I encourage you to check it out. It's pretty good. So we're going to look at just a few verses today in chapter 5. And yes, it's the kind of letter that has chapters. It's just that long, and, and it's that serious. But here's what you need to know about the chapters leading up to chapter 5. Here's my very brief summary of chapters 1 through 4 of Romans, just to get us in the right context. Chapter 1, humans are the worst. And uh, what a great way to start a letter. Uh, that's, uh, and, and more specifically, that that's why God's judgment is unavoidable. That's, that's how many, uh, that's not how I start letters out, usually, depending on who I'm writing a letter to, but Paul starts there. He says, humans are just, they can't get it right. And if we're honest, humans can be pretty terrible at times. Uh, not all the time, but sometimes. Chapter two, uh, religious people are People aren't any better. And, and you thought if as a pastor, I might make it sound like everyone, but God's people are good. Uh, no, not here. Religious people, chapter two of Romans, just as bad. Um, so all religious people, get over yourself. You're not that great. Chapter three, there is no one good. I mean, he really wants you to feel this reality. He really wants to drive this home. And, and I get it. Some of the uh, some of you have tuned in here for a promise of hope, and this is what you get. So hold on, though. It's a hard introduction, but it's meant to knock us down a little bit. It's meant to remind us that, that I'm not better than you. So much hurt happens in this world. So much injustice. In fact, most injustice happens in this world because people believe the lie that some people are better than others. 
that some people are worth more than others, that I'm better than you, that I deserve more, that I need more, I've earned my place, that I have what I have because I'm inherently better than those who don't. And it's not true. We are no better than each other. We're all broken. And this is where Paul pivots. He introduces the jewel of our faith. Chapter four, he says, you don't have to be good to be all right. There's no one good and that's all right because there's another way. We don't have to keep trying anymore. Here's what I think Paul's trying to say. He's really trying to get us to face reality. And, and reality is we need help. That, that, and, and that God has the help that we need. We, we don't get on God's good side for trying to do more or trying to do more good than even bad. We get on good side because of this thing called grace. Grace, unmerited favor. Just as our brokenness is this universal factor so is God's grace. It's available to anyone who wants it. And we are accepted just as we are. God loves us. And we accept this grace, this gift by faith. Faith. We aren't going to be all right because we try harder. Friends, you're not going to be all right this season of your life because you try harder. We're going to be all right because we trust in something bigger than ourselves. Someone bigger than ourselves. It's here, though, that we pick up the passage we want to look at in Romans 5, 1 through 5. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, Romans 5, verse 1, and here's what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I found this interesting because there's different manuscripts. If, if you're not familiar, you know, this letter would have been written, you know, 2,000 years ago, like I said, it would have, wouldn't have been written in English. There's lots of translations, but there's also lots of manuscripts uh, that give us different perspectives. And one of the manuscripts actually has the, the verb tense here different. Um, instead of saying, we have faith, so we have peace, they word it, we have faith, so let us have peace. They turn it into an imperative, a, a form of command. So since we have faith, let us have peace. It's almost this idea, and I, and I almost prefer this right now, it's, this particular manuscript. It's almost this idea that it's possible to have faith, to be made right with God. That's what it means to be justified. That's what he's saying here. You're justified through faith. You're made right with God. You're standing with God, with creation, with each other. It's all been taken care of. You're, you're not at war anymore. It doesn't matter how much you've done wrong. You can be justified, technically speaking, with God and still not feel it. It's possible to be with God, to be made right with God, to be in good standing with God, and yet still feel like we aren't. And so Paul says, because we are already right with God, let us have peace. Let us come to realize the peace that we already have. So we remind ourselves, you are at peace with God already. And I want you to hear this. God isn't mad at you. God's grace has, has made a way. God forgives you, whatever you've done, you are right now in the name of Jesus at peace with God. And that's what makes Jesus so special. He made a way for us to be at peace with God, at peace with ourselves, at peace with this world, at peace with everything. And so I hope you can hear that. Well, Paul goes on, verse two. Though whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. He's saying We've been invited into a room called grace. And in this room, all things are forgiven. 
In fact, I, I, he says, it's almost like he's saying, we've been invited into an entire house. We're quarantined in a house called Grace. And in every room we go into that house, everything is taken care of. We're forgiven. We are loved. And, and in fact, I would say that really what he's saying is we've been invited to live in this world as if the entire world is a place of grace. And there's nowhere you can go that will keep you from experiencing that grace because it's in that grace that we stand no matter where we're standing, or in this case, sitting, or maybe laying in bed, or on your couch, you're in grace. And the password for that room, for that house, for that way of seeing the world, the entrance requirement is faith. Not what you do or say or act, it's faith. Another way of thinking about it is like this. To receive God's grace, you need to trust that you already have. To receive this grace, you have to trust that you already have. God's already paved the way. God already made a way. And you receive it by trusting it. And so we can boast in the glory of God. We can boast in the hope that comes from God. God's got us. God is going to take care of us. We're going to be okay. We can be sure of that. God isn't going to leave us or hurt us or let us be destroyed. God's got us. Isn't that good news? I, I, wish, I wish Paul would end it there, you know. Just stop. Don't say anything more. But he doesn't. He goes on. Here's what he says. Next verse. Not only so. He says, not only do we get the glory in God or celebrate all that God's doing or have this beautiful experience with God, but we also glory in our sufferings. (laughs) What? So we get the glory in the goodness of God, but we also have glory in our suffering. We get to celebrate our Why? How? How is it? What does he even mean? Here's what he says. Next verse. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. He starts with suffering and he ends with hope. And suffering isn't even the right word here. He's talking about trials. He, he, says, he says, we can glory in our trials because ultimately they will produce hope. Now that's an interesting idea. Trials that lead to hope. Uh, if that's possible, I could use some of that wisdom. I wonder if you could too. So I want to dig a little deeper. We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. So I want to look at each of these four words concerning what they mean in the language they were originally written almost 2,000 years ago. And here's the first one, suffering. Suffering, the Greek word here um, properly means pressure. That's what it means. It means pressure. It's this way of describing hard times when life becomes very difficult. And life has been difficult before this last week, but there's an additional pressure on us now, and life becomes very chaotic. But but suffering, this word for suffering means pressure. It's this immense pressure that pushes against you, and you feel trapped, and you don't feel like there's any way to escape it. It it implies this internal pressure that we feel when we're in a trial, when we're in a difficult time, that, that feeling that everything is falling apart, and it's building up, and there's no way to get out of it. It's the word Paul uses in his letter to the Corinthians when he says this. He says, we are hard-pressed. That word, hard-pressed. Suffering, trial, this sort of pressure. We are hard-pressed on every side, he says. On every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. I wonder how familiar you are with that 
uh, kind of pressure. How have you felt uh, pressure that's closing in, no escape, how you felt that even this week? Have you? Uh, I'm going to tell you how I felt it. This whole week, myself and everyone else in the world has been trying to cope and to figure out life in the midst of this, these massive shifts. If there's anything good about what's happening right now, um, it's this. Never have we been more aware of just how much we have in common. We're all in this together, and, and, and it, it's a bit of an equalizer, and it's true that some have it harder and some have unique vulnerabilities for sure, but we in this time have so much in common. And so it's in the midst of this trying to figure out life and adjust to all the craziness that, 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 that it decides on Wednesday night to rain. Like rain, rain. Like because of that, so many basements are flooded, including West Park Church, which is where we hold Little Bottoms Free Store. We get to help manage that building. It's in, the, uh, it's in Franklinton, which is known as the Bottoms, which means floodplain. And it's a 100-year-old building, and then now the basement is filled with water. It's like when it rains, it pours, sometimes literally. Of course it does. So Alyssa and I, we talk, and, and I'm going like, to try to help figure this out. I'm going to try to fix the problem. So I, I head in the truck, and I go to the hardware store. I'm going to get a pump, you know, to pump the water out. And friends, I am not happy. I'm already overwhelmed. I'm already stressed. Well, I see Home Depot over in Hilliard has a pump at that location. So I hop in the truck. I drive over there. I get there. Of course, dozens of other people are trying to buy these pumps. Of course they are. And there are no pumps available. And uh, I'm really not happy. So I get in my car, I look up the app, and it says Westerville has some of these pumps. So I like, you know what, fool me, fool me once, uh, you know, don't fool me twice. I, I pay for it on the app for store pickup. Like, I'm going to get this pump to get this water out of there. I've got this. So while the order's being processed, I head over to Westerville, another 20-minute drive, and guess what? And thankfully, it is ready when I arrive. So like, you know what, I'm feeling confident we're going to get this. I load it in the car. I head to the church. I drive all the way back to Franklinton. I hook up the hose. I find an extension code. I drop the pump in the water. doesn't turn on. Of course it doesn't turn on. It's this automatic pump. It only turns on when the water gets a certain height. Oh, I am less happy than before. And I didn't start out in a particularly great mood. Well, I figure out, I figure out how to get past the automatic feature. I get the pump to turn on. I feel a little better. I'm like, I've got this. We can figure this out. The water starts to pump. It builds up pressure. I can hear it. It's working. And then the water starts to squirt out the hose, you know, where it connects to the pump. And it goes everywhere. Now I'm like super not happy. So I'm like, I, I, but you know what? I have a second hose. I brought a second hose. So I hook it up. Same thing. Both. Somehow. I don't know lost the little rubber gastic ring or something, they're not working. Well, it's lunchtime at this point. I'm hungry. My hands are covered in basement sewer water, and I need a new hose. So I go home. I wash my hands. I find out Alyssa's going to be interviewed on TV, which is cool. And so I say, hey, I'll take, I got to go to the store. I'll take Finn with me to the store. And I load Finn up. We head to the store. Every road is closed on the way there. Of course it's closed. There's no way to get to the store. I can't even get to the store to buy the hose to fix the water problem. So on the way to the hardware store, I happen to pass a Walmart, and I'm like, fine, I'm going to go to the Walmart. Uh, we get out. We go find a hose. I'm frustrated. I'm overwhelmed. I'm in a hurry. Water's just sitting in the basement. We went to checkout. Finn follows behind me, and the person in front needed to get the manager in the checkout line. So I notice the self-checkout is open. So I tell Finn we're going to head over there. I head over there. I start to scan, and I realize Finn is no longer with me. And I freak out. I run back to where I was, and Finn is now wandering 
in, in the hall, uh, in the store, just crying. He thinks he's been abandoned. And I just feel terrible. I pick him up, and of course, you know, all the things that were bothering me just seemed so stupid, you know, compared to the look that was on his face. I comfort him. We get in the car. I call Alyssa. I say, I'm on the way. I've got the hose. And she says, oh, well, the, the hose that was there, it works now. We found the missing rubber gasket. Um, one of the other volunteers put it together. All the water's out. Of course they did. I should be happy. <laughs> I'm not happy. It gets cleaned up. I'm done for the day. Trials can overwhelm us. Trials, intense pressure can bring out the worst in us. Trials can make us hurry and make us try to fix things and keep us from thinking clearly and just shut down completely. And the first step to handling this kind of overwhelming pressure, this internal and external pressure, is Paul's next word. Paul says this about trials. He says, trials produce perseverance. And that's maybe not even the best word for it. Not perseverance. Perseverance is maybe the wrong word. The better word might be long-suffering. The Greek word here doesn't mean pressing forward. It doesn't mean pushing through no matter what. It doesn't mean forcing solutions or, or rushing to the store to the point that you, you, know, you lose your son. No, it literally means in the Greek to remain under. It's, it's not so much pressing ahead in adversity as simply saying put without losing hope. It's the willingness to stay put, to calm down, to find your center, to rest, to trust, to slow down. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but there's someone here, I'm sure, and I'm one of them, who needs to hear, you need to slow down. You can't fix everything. You, know, you, you, got, you got to rest. You got to learn this sort of patience that endures in a world where you can't change or control everything. The best thing you can do this week is slow down. To sit, to breathe, to, to notice your breath. You know, one of the things that helps with my anxiety, and I know there's many who are feeling anxiety, uh, is to, to, to pr- become present. And by noticing things in the room, I'm here. I'm not somewhere else. My mind can take me into the future, take me into all kinds of problems, but I'm right here in this room with this group of people in front of this camera. That's where I am. I can notice that. I can notice my reality. I can breathe. I can remain. I can retreat. Trials give us a chance to push against the urge to fix everything and to simply trust in the God who is in the midst of it. And so we learn patience, a slower way of living. We live in the present, not worrying about the future. And here's what I found against worrying about the future and trying to remain present. If you focus on worrying about the future, you won't be able to find peace in the present. So if you start by worrying about the future, you're not going to find peace in the present. But if you start by finding peace in the present, just being thankful for what you have right now, where you're at, if you center yourself, you'll be able to look at the future without fear, with a sense of hope. And when you do this, Paul says it produces character, this sort of wisdom. The word here means to be proven genuine. It's sort of the seal of approval. It says, you know, when you've gone through this and you've learned to slow down, you've learned to live differently, you, you, you receive this seal that becomes this, you're proven genuine. You've survived this. You've been pressed, but you haven't been crushed. And so you can survive and you receive this approval. You, you've not been found wanting. The trial will teach us to become the people we were always meant to be. People who can sit and trust and be slow and live in the present from fear, free from fear. And in turn, this produces for us hope. 
And hope is all about being certain of what isn't yet. And Paul, he says this. He says, this is what's so great about hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Another translation will say that hope does not disappoint. The word here for shame or disappoint, it's a, it's a fun little Greek word. It means literally to curse vehemently, just to let loose and say all the things you wouldn't say around a three-year-old. I'm not saying I haven't. But, you know, to just let loose because you're so deep. It's this cross-section of, of, of disappointment and shame and frustration and anger. I mean, how many have felt that at some point this week? If you haven't, I don't know where you're living or, or, or what you've been doing because I'd, I'd love to be a part of it because I've felt that more than once. And here's what Paul says. He says, hope won't do that to you. It's not going to make you want to curse. There's enough things in this world that are going to make us want to curse, but hope won't do that. It won't disappoint. It won't frustrate. It won't put us to shame. Hope isn't one of them. So suffering will make us want to curse. Being under intense pressure and bring out maybe some of those deep frustrations and discomfort, but not hope. And that reminds us, I have to be honest, hope isn't always the byproduct of hard times. In fact, I'd say it's, it's not the most common reaction. It's the exception to the rule. More often than not, when we are hard-pressed, we are crushed because of it. Suffering can beat hope out of people. That's what tends to happen. But it doesn't have to happen. And the difference is what Paul says next. He says this, This is all possible because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Love is the difference. Love through God's spirit, meeting us right where we are is what transforms suffering into hope. God's love is being poured out in us in ways we can't begin to comprehend. God is sending God's spirit all, at all times and all places to meet us and to comfort us and to remind us that we are love, that love gives us hope in the midst of suffering. You know, that moment when I realized that Finn wasn't at my side, oh, the feeling that I had in that store where I wasn't sure where he was, I, 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 was, I was afraid someone maybe would snatch him or, or he'd get... That moment is going to stick with me as a parent for a long time. But when I realized he was safe, and I, and I saw the look on his, on his face, just how scared he was, I ran over, I scooped him up, you know, I, I comforted him, I asked him, I talked to him about how that was scary and how I was sorry that cut so deep into my heart. And after I picked him up, I realized in that moment, I was never more sure of my love for him than the way I felt when I was afraid, when, when I felt his fear. I, I never felt more love for my son than when I saw him afraid and I wanted to comfort him. Uh, later, I was thinking about this, and some of the words that Jesus said uh, came to me. He once compared God to that of a parent. It's a fairly simple, simple metaphor that, that happens throughout Scripture. And he argued that if parents love their children, he says even if parents who are human and perfect, who like to hurry, who make mistakes, who get their priorities wrong, that's me. Uh, but even if human parents can love their children imperfectly so, how much more does God love us? If you've found yourself frustrated, feeling lost, maybe you want to cry, under pressure, exhausted, 
if you feel alone, if you feel abandoned, if you feel hurt, and maybe you feel these things long before, you know, this, this shutdown, before everything happened in the world. You've been feeling this for a while, and this just makes it worse. I just want you to know, I have never been more confident that God looks at you. His heart breaks for you, and he wants nothing more than to scoop you up, to hold you close, to reassure you, to talk about how you feel. I promise you that. If me, an imperfect dad, feels that much love for my son when I see him afraid. How much more does God, our heavenly parent, the perfect parent, love us? How much more does God's heart break when God sees us hurting and afraid? God wants to hold you close through the, through the power of God's spirit. And maybe things won't get easier. And maybe things won't be bettered, but you won't be alone and you will know you are loved. And I've found that I can endure most hardships if I know I'm not alone. If I know that I'm loved. And friends, you are loved. And it's knowing God's love poured out to us through the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit who's available at all times and all places. Available right now in your room, wherever you find yourself. That God's love can be experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit right now. And it's that Holy Spirit who can take suffering, hardship, trials. And turn them into patience and character and ultimately hope. We want to create space for you to know the God who loves you. We want to create space for you to carve out time aside to spend with God and to, to pray for your family, friends, for the pray for this world and uh, space to center yourselves, to rest, to quiet yourselves. And, you know, when the world spins and life becomes chaotic, people of faith have a long tradition of removing themselves from the chaos to a quiet place to pray. Going back in many traditions but seen especially in the person of Jesus when he was walking this earth. There is great strength in this kind of retreat. So that's why we're going to hold on April 4th and 5th a 24-hour prayer vigil. So starting on the 4th and running to worship on the 5th, we are inviting uh, a few uh, churches to join us to pray for 24 hours nonstop, uh, one half hour at a time. And you don't have to pray for the whole 24 hours. We're just inviting you to sign up to pray for at least one half hour block. And when you do, you'll be given resources to help guide your prayer time. You'll get reminders via email and text to keep you up to date. And, and we're going to challenge you to really make this half hour or multiple half hour blocks if you want, uh, be a time where you can really pray without distraction. So if you're, you are family or if you have a spouse or if you have kids, maybe it's going to have to be after bedtime. Maybe you're going to have to wake up in the middle of the night over that 24-hour period. Uh, whatever you need to do, but we want you to find a time that is free of distractions to be able to meditate, to be able to sit. For it's in those times that we hear the whisper of God the best. So you can sign up for a prayer spot by going to centralcity.co slash prayer. And we'll make sure that the link is in the comments as well as posts in other places. But I encourage you, please do this. This is, this is um, not only do I believe prayer can change the world, I know prayer can change us. So I invite you to do that. Um, as we close, I'd like to offer you another prayer that I have found to give me hope in this season. It's from the Common Prayer of Ordinary Radicals, and it was brought to my attention by Heidi Weaver Smith, who read it on one of our daily podcast readings, and I'd like to offer it to you. But I encourage you to join in with me. Each line with this, uh, ends with the same phrase, simply, today I believe. So I invite you to say that phrase uh, each time it comes up, uh, today I believe. So I invite you to try that with me now. Today I believe. Let's pray. Lord, you have always given bread for the coming day. And though I am poor, 
today, I believe. Lord, you have always given strength for the coming day. And though I am weak, today, I believe. Lord, you have always given peace for the coming day. And though of anxious heart, today, I believe. Lord, you have always kept me safe in trials. And now, tried as I am, today, I believe. Lord, you have always marked the road for the coming day, and though it may be hidden, today I believe. Lord, you have always lightened this darkness of mine, and though the night is here, today I believe. Lord, you have always spoken when time is ripe, and though you be silent, today I believe. Amen.